Welcome to Now Appalachian, hosted by author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. This show profiles the authors and publishers that have connections to the Appalachian region and how those connections influence and impact their works. And now, Appalachia. And hello, friends. We welcome you to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and it's great to have you with us as we continue to profile the outstanding authors and publishers who call Appalachia home and are writing about the Appalachian region and featuring the Appalachian region in their works. And on our program today, we have an author who was with us last year talking to us about his first novel, The Paul Bear. He's back again today to talk to us about his latest novel. It is called The Poison Flood, and our author is Jordan Flood, uh, Jordan Farmer to talk about The Poison Flood. And Jordan joins us. He is a native of West Virginia. He was born and raised in a small West Virginia town of a population of about 2,000 people. He earned his master's degree from Mercer University and his PhD at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and we're delighted to have him back on the program to talk about his outstanding new book called The Poison Flood. So, Jordan, welcome back to Now Appalachia. Good to have you with us once again. Thank you, Elliot. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. You know, this book is really, really interesting for a lot of different reasons, and there's a lot uh, to get to with it. And you've got, once again, just like you did in The Paul Bear, uh, an outstanding protagonist named Hollis Bragg, who we follow early on in the story. But before we get to that, I wanted to ask you a question about uh, the setting of your story, because setting is so important uh, in The Poison Flood, and it was a, an important component uh, in your previous novel, The Paul Bear. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because really one of the key themes of your book um, is a sort of a sobering portrayal of an environmental disaster that occurs on a small community. And, it, and it's about how that small community deals with this environmental disaster and kind of how Hollis has to deal with that environmental disaster. But you and I both grew up in West Virginia and we have seen a lot of, unfortunately, uh, natural disasters, some man-made and some truly natural disasters occur uh, in the state and to the state citizens over the decades. And I just wanted to ask you uh, your thoughts on, uh, on that and really why is it that um, it seems like uh, West Virginia has been a target as a state for so many opportunities for environmental abuse, a lot of this environmental abuse being um, brought on by other individuals. Why do you think West Virginia for some reason has suffered from that and does that lend you good opportunities as a storyteller and as a fiction writer to kind of draw on that real life experience for ideas for your stories? Well, as far as why we've been so exploited by um, outside interests for so long, I'm not sure I have a, an explanation for that. I mean, maybe a long time ago in early days, it was simply based on just, you know, uh, being so isolated, geographically isolated in some way. Um, as far as why it continues, I, I'm really not sure. Uh, it does, however, unfortunately seem to continue. Um, I, I think that um, being from West Virginia and from Appalachia in general, these kind of environmental issues have been on uh, the minds of people who live here um, a long time. We've just we've lived with it, as you said, so long that before the rest of uh, America and the world started thinking about climate change and, the, and environmental issues, they were already immediate issues here. Maybe even so much, maybe even more than climate change and um, environmental issues are prescient or immediate issues to people 
globally or nationally at least. Um, it, it's these things have been happening to us right now for a long time. So it's kind of, I guess, impossible to ignore them. You've been influenced by them in some way if you're from here. Um, I was thinking particularly about the um, the chemical spill incident we had in Charleston uh, a couple years back. Uh, it was kind of an influence when it was happening. I was like, oh, well, here, here we are again, you, you know, and uh, I knew I would kind of write about it, but I didn't know uh, how or when at the time. I, I typically, typically my, my works, especially my longer works that aren't short stories, involves the kind of uh, connection of two very separate ideas. There's some kind of like um, character or internal conflict that I'm interested or theme that I'm interested in exploring. And that has to uh, coincide or collide with some kind of larger um, external conflict. So I knew that um, this environmental disaster in Appalachia in a small town and its impacts on the people were something I wanted to be the sort of exterior or external conflict in the story. It wasn't until I thought of Hollis that I knew, okay, this is the person who's going to be our kind of lens into that. Very good. Excellent. So let's, yeah, well, off on a tangent. I don't know if I answered your question. But, no, no, that was that. No, that was great. That was perfect. And you mentioned Hollis, and so let's talk a little bit about him. He he's an interesting character. He's a gifted songwriter. You established that as part of his makeup and part of his uh, his background. Um, and he's paid for. He makes money writing lyrics for a popular singing group, although they don't give him attribution for being the songwriter from that. Um, but one of the other things that is interesting about Hollis is he has a physical deformity um, that also weighs on him. So he's got this really creative side of being a songwriter, but he also deals with kind of some internal uh, strife because he has a physical deformity. Can you talk a little bit about the physical deformity that he has and how that kind of weighs on his subconscious as we follow him through the novel? Yeah, Hollis uh, is the... Uh, as a musician who who uh, writes lyrics and music for this um, band that's become quite famous that he was a founding member of that left before it kind of um, found any kind of critical acclaim or larger audience. Um, and he has a hunchback. So his perception of how people um, see him or think of him has really kind of hindered his ability to kind of put himself out there physically in the spotlight, especially in, a, in an artistic form that in that requires him to uh, perform. So, so I, I was thinking, um, much like with my last book, The, the Paul Bear, who had um, the Jason Feltz character who has dwarfism, I, I was thinking of the idea of, again, these characters are just not, uh, these characters with what I call unconventional bodies are not often represented in fiction in a way that doesn't focus entirely on their bodies in some ways. Uh, then we talked about that last time I was here. Um, I have what I guess I would consider an unconventional body. It's the phrase I use anyway. I don't know how other people feel about that phrase. I use it for myself. So I use it for my characters. Um, but uh, I have a bone disorder that is uh, affecting my height. I'm about five foot tall. I have scoliosis. So when I was young and I was reading and finding all these books I loved, I was like, you know, I, I never see anyone who is physically different in these books. And when I occasionally do, the story is only about the, the physical difference. It's never about anything else. So I've had this um, conscious effort to thematically explore the idea of physical difference while also putting these characters into stories that aren't solely about that, that eventually through 
plot or other themes has to move on to other ideas and let you get sort of past this idea of the difference of their bodies by seeing them in these other situations or moments. So uh, that was one of the reasons why I thought Hollis had to have this condition. Um, the other reason was because I was just thinking about the idea of um, a character who creates in some way, who's involved in art, but I didn't really want to write about writing. Um, and I, I really like music, I'm influenced by it, and I like the performative aspect of it. And I thought that having someone who was a songwriter would let me maybe explore these ideas of art and creating, but in maybe a more active, interesting way than a, you know, a guy by himself writing or something like that. Very good, excellent. Jordan Farmer is our guest here today on Now Appalachia. We're talking to him about his latest novel, The Poison Flood. It is the second novel that he has written. His first novel was called The Paul Bear, and Jordan is back with us uh, once again to talk about uh, his new book. He was with us last year, and we enjoyed our, our time with him then, enjoyed our conversation with him then, and we're thrilled to have him back uh, once again here on the program. So, Jordan, I wanted to ask you about that, that idea of being a songwriter, because one of the things that we learn Hollis decides to do is to come up with an album, uh, launch a new album, kind of a new creative project that gets put on hold because there is a chemical tank leak that pollutes Coopersville's water, mm -hmm. or Cooperville, Coopersville's water. There we go. Say that three times fast. And sure. uh, um, can, can you talk a little bit about what, what's going on there, where it happened uh, and the impact on not only Hollis, but the community when that water leak occurs or that tanker leak occurs? Yeah, so Hollis is kind of living in isolation at the time that this happens. He's not writing his own music. He's simply composing this music and, and ghostwriting for this um, famous rock band, they're called the Troubadours, that he um, was a founding member of, but is no longer involved in. But he's kind of, I guess I would say, flirting with the idea or finally entertaining the idea maybe I want to write my own stuff. There's these snippets of song or music that he's kind of um, experiencing or hearing that just kind of won't leave him alone. So he's, he's already struggling with this idea of gaining the courage of, am I going to put myself out in the spotlight? Am I going to try and put something out in the world? Especially when he knows he has the talent to do it. He's already, his, his music is already widely acclaimed. They just don't know it's his. Oh, the audiences don't, don't know it's his. So while he's having this will I or won't I struggle about um, putting his own name to his, his creative endeavors, this large chemical spill takes place. And some of the publicity from that pushes him kind of in the spotlight, whether he wants it or not. Very good. And something else we learned about Hollis, too, uh, going back to his character for a moment, is that his dad is a preacher or was a preacher at one time. Can you talk to us a little bit about the role religion plays sort of in his life and your use of religion in the story and why you had that element in there as sort of a subplot or a backstory to Hollis's life? Yeah, you know, many people keep coming up with this, with this question about religion, and I think that they thought that I had some kind of uh, major um, discussion uh, or some kind of major point regarding religion when religion just seemed to me to be what his father would do uh, based on background and based on sort of character. And it's, it wasn't necessarily some kind of um, statement on religion so much as this statement on 
kind of authoritarian systems and what it's like when you don't fit in. You, you know, his his Hollis kind of rejects some of the teachings of his father, and it wasn't so much rejection of religion as much as it was just what happens when you don't fit in. What's what's it like for you when the, there are certain things expected of you, whether it be your parents or your community or your family or what have you, and you just say, I, I don't know if I can meet those expectations. They're not for me. Um, so religion was just kind of my way into that theme. It wasn't necessarily about religion. Very good. And I know that, you know, you and I being both from West Virginia, oftentimes uh, religion does have a foothold in some ways on just about every small community and small town. And a lot of it is based on the setup of a town. If you look at any small town in West Virginia, you know, your central buildings are usually the courthouse, city hall, the post office, and there's a church close by. So this idea of sort of religion in Appalachia and religion in small towns uh, yeah. Very much a backdrop of just about every small community, uh, yes, particularly in West Virginia. If we've got nothing else, we'll have a church and a bar. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. right. We'll have those two things for sure. No yeah. question about it. Yeah. Jordan Farmer is our guest here today on Now Appalachia. We're talking to him about his latest book, The Poison Flood. So, Jordan, we'll come back to your book here in just a minute. I wanted to ask you a few questions about uh, writing and the writing process and how you put this novel together. This is your second novel. The Paul Bear was your first, as we've mentioned. In terms of writing this book, what was similar and what was different in terms of your writing process for putting this story together as opposed to The Paul Bear? I think that first of all, it was just different as far as structure is concerned. Uh, the Paul Bear had multiple narr- narratives or, or multiple points of view, where sometimes I was uh, third person with one character, third person with another character, and it kind of alternated. Um, main characters based on the chapter. So it was more of a sort of an ensemble piece, uh, kind of a collage, whereas this has been exclusively from Hollis's view. Um, There are chapters that take place in the past that inform us of his uh, younger years or how he met certain characters or his past or how he got into music or things with his father. But um, aside from that, the narrative is mostly really tightly condensed into just a couple of days when this environmental disaster kind of takes place. But maybe if I remember correctly, a day or two before the disaster and then a couple days during the disaster until a day or two after. So the timeline was much more fixed and much more um, tight than the other book where it was, you know, a couple months with all these different points of view. Whereas this one was one point of view for, you know, a week or so. Um, And also this, um, this one wasn't written, the scenes that are in the present are actually written in present tense, which I felt was a, maybe a small change, but a, a really dramatic change when I was reading, we go back and read what I'd read the day before. Um, there was just such a more of an obedience to it with just that little bit of tense change. And, and because of that, I think because this, the present scenes were in the present tense, it also made the scenes in the past much more kind of meditative because we did change from that, you know, that tends to change. Excellent. Very good. So from the time you got the idea to write this book until the first draft was completed, how long did that take? And what kind of a writer are you? Do you write early in the mornings, late at night? Do you write, you know, do you have word counts every day or do you just write for a certain set of time? How did all that come together in terms of the poison flood? I don't really remember the timeline as far as how long I worked on it or um, when I was finished. I know that, um, I had to have been finished by the beginning of 2019 because that's when I was shopping it around. So um, 
I would say probably a year and a half, maybe two years working on it. But um, as far as what kind of writer I am when I'm working on a major project, I try to write every day. Um, I don't necessarily have a time where I, you know, get up first thing in the morning or last thing of the day. I don't have a, a time of the day scheduled, but I try to write a minimum of a thousand words a day when I'm working on something. Um, that by no means means that it gets done every day. You know, some days you just stare at the blank screen and you go, okay, I wrote 200 words and that's all that's going to happen. Uh, and there are days where sometimes you push past the thousand words, but I find that if I write too much past the thousand words, I get sloppy and my lines are the quality of what they could be. So it's usually, you know, I'm out of, I'm out of gas by a thousand words, occasionally a little bit further, but usually not much. And um, I don't outline or anything like that. I, I feel like to outline would be maybe um, a sneaky way to try to avoid hard revision. Like I wouldn't trust myself maybe to outline. I would think that I was just trying to um, dodge some of the hard work. Uh, and I like the idea of having things occur and surprise me. You know, I mean, I may know this is what's going to happen at the middle. I don't know what's going to happen at the, at the end. You know, I, mean, I kind of have like maybe points along the way where I knew I have to write two. But, you know, the first draft's chaos, kind of just whatever works. I'll change perspective, point of view, tense, whatever, whatever gets me to the end. And then the second draft is cleaning things up and finding some order in, in that um, try anything, whatever works kind of first draft mess yeah i think it was ernest hemingway who said uh, your first draft is always crap or something to that effect yeah i, I heard i think no gaiman I, I i hate to like attribute a quote to someone that i'm not sure it was them but i think it was no gaiman uh, whoever said it the quote definitely stuck with me they said something like your second draft is pretending like you knew what you were doing on your first draft right it made a lot of sense to me like okay that's you know i if my job is to go back and pretend like I knew that this was the answer to fixing all this. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, we see a lot of uh, going back to your book for just a second. We, we see a lot of music and, and we talked about Hollis and his ability to make money as a songwriter. He comes up with this creative project. Uh, you mentioned the, uh, the, the troubadours and kind of their role. So the fact that music and bands were in the book, is there a certain, uh, band or group or set of musicians that you like or that uh, inspired you to kind of in, imbue the musical elements uh, into your book? I, I mean, I think a lot of them are in the book, like there's bands referenced here or there, and things I liked. But um, I think that growing up in a small town and wanting to ride and being a creative person, but not having a writing community, most of my friends were musicians. Um, because that was a popular creative outlet uh, that we had. So uh, I think I was just influenced by musicians in general. And then, of course, I had this kind of um, this strange dual influence of um, a lot of my friends and I were into sort of punk rock. So, so we would, you know, we, we found our way into it with like, you know, radio stuff like Green Day. And then eventually worked our way back and we're like, oh, here's like Iggy and the Stooges and things like that. Um, it spoke to us in that kind of outsider, not part of um, the larger culture kind of way. You know, it was like these guys, these guys are never going to get an, an interview with like Sony Records. They have to just do it themselves the way we feel like we have to do it ourselves. So even when we didn't get the music, 
we got the I guess the perspective or the or the the attitude or that kind of do-it-yourself um, nature of that kind of music. But then I also have the influence of, you know, like country music being so popular around here and, you know, your grandfather going like, here's a Johnny Cash CD, right? Um, so, so I think that just being exposed to a lot of diverse music and a lot of different styles was pretty important at an early age. Yeah, very good. Um, something else that I really like that we see in the Poison Flood is as a result of the situation where there is this, this natural disaster and we see the, uh, the, the chemical tank leak that sort of pollutes uh, Cooper, Coopersfield's water, Coopersville's water, um, we also find out there's a murder that takes place. Um, and I don't want to give too much away about the murder and, and who's involved necessarily in what happens, but I think you do a really good job of working that murder in as a subplot but never kind of taking the focus away from Hollis and what um, the folks of uh, Coopersville are dealing with here in terms of not just the pollution, but the economic decline and decay of their community as a result of uh, job losses and coal mines closing down. Can you talk a little bit about layering that and working that murder in and how, how you kept it to where it was a part of the story, but um, you were able to weave it around Hollis and everything else he was experiencing and everything else that the folks in Coopersville were experiencing? Yeah, I think that um, in some ways there's a blending of genres of, of sort of literary fiction and crime fiction in the novel. And it's the same way that I've been influenced by like different styles of music or different genres of music. So I think seeing or, or being influenced by, seeing musicians, sorry, influenced by different genres and kind of blending them um, just made sense to me to why couldn't I blend sort of the aspirations of literary fiction, which deal with, you know, these deep issues of um, universal themes and, and, and characteristics while at the same time dealing with, you know, uh, some plot issues that, that show up in crime fiction. Um, there are some people that really have that kind of um, that separation where it's, you know, crime fiction must be this, you know, it must be, you know, a dead body on page three, and it must be all about solving that. And I never really got hung up on that kind of thing. To me, it was just, it, it made sense that, you know, if it's good fiction that's exploring important themes the way all, I think all good fiction should, then the kind of that bigger label of, is it crime fiction, is it mystery, is it romance, whatever, that's just something so booksellers can put it on a shelf somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, um, so to me, it was, I don't know, I didn't think too much about, oh no, is this, is the crime element too much of a subplot, um, or is it too much of a focus? I just kind of went with it and hopefully felt like it blended enough to where things worked out okay. Very good. So when readers get to the very last page, they close the back cover of your book and they kind of put it aside and step away from it. What are one or a couple of big takeaways you hope they will take from the book once they finished it? I mean, I think primarily I just want, I want them to be entertained. I think that any fiction, no matter how lofty its goals are politically or um, ideologically or what themes it expo experiences or hope, I mean, excuse me, what themes it hopes you experience, all that's failed if it hasn't caught your interest and entertained you, right? It's got to entertain. It's got to be engaging. 
So number one, I just want them to, to be engaged with it and entertained and like it. Um, but I do hope that it makes them consider uh, some of the themes of the book, which is, you know, how important our environment is and how much we need, we need our land and um, to take care of our, our planet uh, for our own well-being. I also want them to be empathetic towards um, people who may be different from them and see things from other people's perspective um, who are in the book. And to kind of have maybe some experience of what life in these small Appalachian towns may be like if they're not from this place originally. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Very good. So I know that um, like most, most authors who have a new book out, you had a um, uh, sort of a publicity campaign I know that was uh, set up for you by your publisher. Um, I know that uh, some of that includes doing book events and I know Jean, uh, GP Putnam Sons had this all set up for you and I know you had a lot uh, going on there uh, with that or a lot that was scheduled to go on. Uh, with promoting your book, but that all changed obviously with the uh, coronavirus pandemic and everything. Mm -hmm. And I know that you and I were talking a little bit about this before we started uh, recording our interview today, that you and a lot of other authors have really had to have a paradigm shift because you've had to go away from expecting trips where you're going to bookstores and meeting people face to face to really relying on technology and the internet and uh, programs like Zoom and Facebook Live and other uh, social media platforms to kind of get the word out about your book. Can you talk a little bit about what you've used um, and how successful you feel like that's been? And do you feel like you have maybe reached a set of readers that you wouldn't have reached had you been going, you know, face to face to a lot of different bookstores in a lot of different cities? I hope so. I mean, I hope I have. Um, I, I think it's kind of too early to tell, maybe. Um, yeah, like you said, I think that we've had to get very inventive um, based on current circumstances and kind of um, make some compromises. I would have loved to have been at some of the places that I was supposed to be at in person. And it was disappointing not to be there in person and kind of have that personal connection with readers and booksellers and also just get to sort of go new places and meet new people. Um, but I also feel pretty fortunate that there's one, there's any attention to books at all right now with, with all these things going on. The fact that, that um, it means a lot to me to see that in this time of great struggle and, and sadness and, and worry that people, books still mean that much to people. It's kind of inspiring in a way. It's kind of made me feel really good to go, oh, well, you know, in, in this literal life and death situation, people are still worried about books. Um, because, I, you know, I have the same concerns that I think most people who love books, not just writers, but readers, booksellers, that we always have, where, you know, we kind of always have this concern, do they still matter the way they used to? And apparently so, they matter a whole lot, right? Readers, even in these really, really troubling times are really worried about them, are worried about the state of books and they're still selling and people are still reading. So that's really great. Um, and I feel fortunate to be, able to have some of these tools and resources like we have right now to be able to, to get the word out and promote things and and share it with people. So it it could be worse, I, I think, is where I stand on it. Um, th things are bad, but they're not 
insurmountable, I guess. Um, and I guess I have to check myself too. Some of it's just vanity. You know, some of it is just vanity of going, man, I wanted to go do that reading. Um, mm -hmm. When that's, that would feel good for me, but that's not as important as somebody finding the book. The book's what's important. You know what I mean? I mean, that would be a cool night for me. I want to do it. But but what's important is that um, the book gets to exist. You know, there's there's some people who, because of this, maybe their art doesn't get to exist. You know, maybe they they, they do something that they don't have the options that I have. Yeah, very, very well said. I, and I, I know yeah. that you echo the sentiment of many authors that we have talked to uh, since this pandemic started that we have coming up as future guests on the program have said a lot of what you've said and basically something to the effect of, I'm just glad my book is out there. My, my, my book has yeah. life. My book is existing in the ether uh, where so many people did not have that opportunity for a variety of different reasons. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that. I think that's really important. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's, I can't lie and say that it's not been disappointing and depressing and, and disheartening and all of those other sort of like negative emotions. It certainly has, but at the same time, I have to remind myself, I have to get back to the, like, that, you know, when you were a kid and this is the only thing you wanted in the world and you didn't know if you would ever make it this far, there's this great publisher that, that has bought it and put it out there and supported it and it's, it's in the world, it gets to exist. And you, you've made it, you've already made it farther than you ever, like, had dreamed at one point. I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, it would be selfish, I suppose, to complain about not having even more. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I understand, understand, very well said. So in, in spying on you and in researching you, I understand that you are working on another novel, and I mm -hmm. dug up this information uh, before our interview today, and that your novel is going to be set in the Great Depression, around the Great Depression period. Uh, can you <laughs> give us a little tease about what's what you're working on and what's so, going to so, be going on there? So this is really bizarre. It's um, It's not set during the Great Depression that we've already had. Um, I've been working on it for about six to eight months and it's set in sort of a a new sort of like great economic collapse, great depression, um, which has been strange because I turn on the news and that may be where we're at uh, with the record level of unemployment and uh, sort of economic struggles we're going through. But it was, yeah, it's, it's set during modern times in a sort of great time of economic calamity. Very um, good. Well, if it's, if it's anything like the poison flood and if it's anything like the pallbearer, we're going to be in for a real treat. It sounds like it's going to be a great, a great book. Any idea on an ETA for when it'll be finished or published? I'm, I'm not certain. I can't say I'm, I'm pretty close to, uh, to finishing. Okay. Fantastic. So Jordan, in our final minutes with you today, if uh, anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about uh, the poison flood, if they want to talk to you about the pallbearer, if they want to talk to you about writing or get in contact with you, how can they do that first of all? And then where can they get copies of the poison flood? Sure. Well, um, they can get in contact with me any number of ways. There's my um, uh, Twitter account. Um, I'm so sorry. I'm so unprepared. I don't know what my Twitter handle is. <laughs> give me just give me just a moment. That's okay. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, at Jordan Farmer PhD. Okay. You can message me on Twitter if you want if you want to talk to me directly. Um, there's of course always um, my agent, the great Noah Ballard at Curtis Brown, and um, 
the publicity department at uh, Putnam Books. As far as where they can find copies of The Poison Flood, um, certainly um, bookshop.org, the, the, the great website that's been helping uh, in, indie bookstores would be a place, IndieBound, um, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, all those online retailers should have it. Um, and hopefully as things start to open up a little bit more economically, your local bookstore. Very good. Excellent. Jordan Farmer has been our guest here today on Now Appalachia. We've been talking to him about his terrific new book, The Poison Flood, set in Coopersville, West Virginia, surrounding a fantastic and interesting character named Hollis Bragg, who lives his life on the fringes. But we find out that uh, once a chemical leak poisons the town's water supply and a murder follows, all kinds of interesting things happen to him and happen to the community in which he lives. Jordan, it's, it's a terrific book. It follows right on the heels of The Paul Bear, which was a wonderful book. So congratulations to, to you on this. Uh, and as you get that third novel finished, uh, we would love to have you back on to talk about it. So congratulations and all the best to you. Thanks so much, Elliot. I appreciate it. We want to take a moment as we finish up and wrap up this episode of Now Appalachia to say and give a special thanks to our executive producer of Now Appalachia. And she's also the executive producer of all the programming you hear here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and her name is Pam Stack. We appreciate uh, all the support that she provides, making sure our podcasts are up and ready to go each and every time you're looking for a new episode of not only Now Appalachia, but the other podcasts that you hear and have heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We couldn't do it without Pam's help and support, so we appreciate all that she does for us. We also want to remind you, this is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And until next time, I'm your host, Elliot Parker. Stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next. Stay tuned for more outstanding podcasts from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.